Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. Uh, on the show this week, the words reverse and ferret come to mind when reviewing the Pensions Ombudsman's recent determination that one month and one month only should be sufficient for pension providers uh, to update their transfer processes, due diligence checks and member communications following the issuance of new regulatory guidance on scams. Uh, the time frame had previously been three months, but following a tricky case involving Aegon, uh, the Ombudsman saw fit to tighten things up. We'll ask why that is and whether one month is enough for scheme providers uh, to make the necessary changes. Next up, master trusts have been chosen as the proverbial canary in the coal mine for dashboards integration. They, along with FCA-regulated providers, will be the, in the first tranche of schemes to provide data to the dashboards as part of the pension dashboard project's proposals for staggered implementation. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, the PDP has set itself targets it calls ambitious. In my admittedly limited experience, this is code for it won't happen, but it would be nice if it did. Um, if met, they would potentially bring as much as 99% of pensions into scope within two years of the first staging date. Potentiality is all very well. We'll ask what is actually likely to happen. And then finally, the pensions regulator is once again urged trustees to remain vigilant of sponsor activity with fears of weakening employer covenants and the prospect of corporate restructures ever present as we continue to move into the post-pandemic universe. It says trustees should be ready to act on corporate activity. We'll ask what that means in practice and how much flexibility trustees have uh, to avoid spraying excrement should it hit the fan. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert. I'm joined today by Francesca Bailey, partner at LCP, and by Leslie Alexander, president of the Pensions Management Institute. And thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you. We will begin then with the uh, Ombudsman. He's decided three months is excessive. One month should be generally sufficient for providers to update their transfers and due diligence procedures in light of new regulatory guidance and requirements. The decision follows a verdict in the case brought against Egon by uh, Mr. R. He alleged that uh, Egon had not proceeded with the appropriate checks uh, before authorizing his transfer back in, I think, 2017. The Ombudsman did find in Egon's favor, but the review of past cases prompted him to shorten the time frame anyway. And Leslie, I think I will begin with you, if you don't mind, on this one. Um, why has this change been made now? It seems slightly retrospective, or he's looked in the past and found that something could be changed. What, 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 why? Well, I think obviously there's a huge focus on scams at the moment. You know, hardly a week goes by without there isn't some pronouncement or another. And at the coalface of this are the administrators and the providers uh, trying to actually meet the requests of members and at the same time adhere to some strict procedures, make sure they understand and implement all the guidance, don't fall foul of disclosure requirements, carry out all their due diligence pro processes and eventually pay the money across. And I, I think it's something that perhaps simply because this is going on and is at the forefront of the ombudsman's mind he's felt it necessary to intervene by making this kind of pronouncement that's all i can think of that as far as the timing is concerned as to why it might come up now ben and, and francesca do you want to come in on this one um obviously there is quite a lot of new guidance coming out as regards to scams, so this will require some collating by the industry and by pensions providers. Um, so he's shortening the time frame, but at the same time, there is a lot more to, to encompass in the change. Is the new time frame sufficient, do you think? Is there a risk that maybe it's a little bit too strict? I, I think one of the questions is actually going to be around whether uh, administrators and providers will have a month 
in, in fact, when this new reg, uh, regulation does come in, I mean, DWP is consulting at it on uh, consulting on it at the moment. I think that consultation closes tonight, and there's going to be a really, really big change. And I think it's probably more interesting to think about what what are, what is the change? What's actually happening? Because it's around the whole the whole purpose of this of this regulation is to prevent scams from taking place, and there is a big loophole in the regulation at the moment, which means that even if trustees or administrators are aware that a scam is taking place, they still can't block the right to transfer. And that is what this regulation is trying to change. And that is really, really quite a, quite a substantial change. And the way that they are trying to do that is around sort of putting in place automatic requirements, which will allow those lower risk transfers to go through pretty, pretty straightforwardly. But also now putting in place if if these two or three various different examples of low risk transfers aren't, aren't uh, in situ, then additional checks will be proposed, which then sort of raise red and amber flags. And I think the question becomes around what do trustees or administrators or providers do when these flags are raised? And it's more around can they put the processes in place to correctly um, react to these and, and do they have the capacity to do that and I think the month is a, a key point but it's actually what does it mean for the providers what sort of processes do they need to be thinking about I mean Leslie what are, what are your thoughts on on that well I think there is so much pressure on administrators at the moment in terms of the resourcing that they need to put in to deal with this. But there's also in the background things like GMP equalization, which we know is another huge project that's going to require tremendous amount of resources. At the same time, we've got consultations going on around simplified benefit statements. The amount of work that's being generated from government in these various areas are all going to have a knock-on effect, I think, on administrators. So whilst I think if you're dealing with a fairly simple scheme that's got a fairly simple benefit structure, you might be able to manage that. But how many defined benefit schemes, for example, do we know that fit into that category? There's usually rafts and different benefit structures, tranches, all of these things have got their own separate individual calculation requirements, you know. And then, of course, you've got your overlay of the new regulations that are coming in. I think it's a, a huge ask of mm. administrators, personally, and um, they have my absolute sympathy. Mm. I Maybe one good thing that might come out of this is that perhaps trustees will give more focus to the administration of their schemes. I do feel from time to time that because admin's a little less sexy than investment, it doesn't always get the emphasis or the respect it deserves on trustee boards. So that could be a good thing that comes out of it. What do you think, Fran? No, I, I completely agree. And I, th I think there is quite a big onus on, on trustees to give it the thought and the time in trustee meetings that it does deserve. I mean, there are sort of things that can be done to help in the run up to when these new regulations are going to be sort of coming in. You can ask administrators about their processes and their procedures. You can trigger the questions around almost mapping those processes, understanding what might need to change to reflect these new regulations. I think there's also TPRs 
pledge as well that came in in, in April, which is is something to ask your administrators: Have they signed up to that? Is is due sort of is, is due guidance being being given around that? And I, I believe there's the the pension scams industry groups code of practice. I mean, there's all mm. sorts of pieces of information out there, and it's just really around trustees taking the responsibility on themselves to make sure that those are being followed. And so support the administrators and give give it the time, give it the resource, give it the budget that it's needed to make sure that the administrators can actually hit the scarbits when it when it does come out. And ju- just finally on this topic, Leslie, if you don't mind, uh, obviously, at least this is very clear from the Ombudsman, whereas previously, I think the Egon case was bought in part because there was a lack of uh, certainty as to how long Egon had had to uh, to carry out the due diligence checks and all the rest. The one month might be quite strict, but it is at least very clear. I suppose there are two possible outcomes. One is that it's a very strict timetable, so you could see more cases before the ombudsman because too many people fail to meet it. On the other hand, though, maybe the clarity might lessen the workload on the ombudsman because at least everybody definitely knows where they stand. I mean, which of these two scenarios do you see panning out in the end? I mean, is it going to lessen or or increase the ombudsman's work in the end? Oh, I think that's a really difficult call. I'm not sure that I would like to put a foot in one camp or the other, to be quite honest. I think... Those of us that have worked in pensions for a long time, we try to do the right thing. So I believe there will be real positive intent by administrators to try and meet that one month. And if they don't, then I think there will likely be very good reasons why they've not been able to meet it. So I'd like to think that we can communicate in such a way with the members that are affected by any delays in such a way that they won't feel that they are losing out. They won't feel that they are going to be, you know, the um, subject of some kind of maladministration or mismanagement. So um, I'd like to think that it will be positive outcome, but it might take a while to get there, given the newness of this. Qualified optimism is a nice note on which to end for that subject. Fantastic. In which case, we will move on uh, to dashboards and master trusts in that case. Um, I use the canary and the coal miner cliche at the top of the programme. Besides being a cliche, it's not actually quite analogous either. I think canaries were sent down coal mines because they were vulnerable to gas leaks, obviously, but also because they were cheaper and more expendable than children. Um, But the plan for dashboards implementation is almost the opposite. It begins with the biggest and the most valuable schemes, uh, the expense of whom all the mistakes will presumably be made, uh, before expanding in two further stages to include defined contribution and then other smaller schemes as well. The ambitious aim, as mentioned, is to have 99% coverage within two years of the first staging date. Fran, I think I'll come to you first on this one, if you don't mind. Um, Your thoughts on the schedule as published, I mean, is why should master trusts go first? Is this just about getting as maximum coverage as quickly as possible, or is it because they can barely expense? Or why are master trusts sort of first in line here? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. They are the first cohort of the first wave, um, and there are only 36 of them, which I think does make it a little bit easier. You're not dealing with sort of thousands of different sort of types of occupational pension schemes. You are, you've got 36, and you've got quite a clear approach. And because master trusts were only set up a few years ago. Recent data cleansing exercises have taken place. There's a quite a comprehensive regulatory framework around master trust, which was designed before they could even be set up. So I think it's going to be, it's almost tackling the easiest first, because then you can learn in your easiest cohort, what are the challenges that arise, even if you don't necessarily think there are going to be that many challenges. I think that's why it does make sense to me that you'd, you'd really start there. Leslie, coming to you on this, I mean, a lot of this will, of course, require most of the infrastructure being in place, I assume, uh, before even master trusts are, are 
are included. Otherwise, well, what's the point? Is that likely to happen, do you think, given how much other work that there is on everyone's agenda at the moment? There are huge data cleansing exercises with McLeod, etc. Uh, there's a lot to do left on dashboards. Is the time frame realistic? Well, this is where I have to ask myself about whether qualified optimism is the right expression to use when it comes to dashboards. I think they're playing a game of catch-up at the moment, and I think they've described their own time frame as uh, ambitious, have they not, Ben? And um, I think ambitious is one way of describing it, certainly. I think what the dashboard delivery program needs to do is really to instill some confidence in the providers and the data suppliers that the framework, the infrastructure is actually going to be there. Because, you know, as Franz said, you know, people have been going through huge data cleansing exercises, which is okay. And you can have tip-top data, but actually you've got to make sure that all the moving parts are in working order, as I like to put it, and that it's actually going to deliver what it says on the tin, that Ron Seal moment. So, um, you know, I would again like to think that we can get somewhere close to the April 2023 date. But as I've already pointed out, there is huge pressure on providers and they tend to be all the same people trying to do the same jobs. Sure. And it's the old yes minister thing. If you want a minister not to do something, you tell him it's bold and ambitious. But if if the, the aim is to, to instill this confidence, Fran, if I'll come to you on this one, if you don't mind. If the need is for more confidence uh, to be instilled in, that there will be the infrastructure in place in time, things won't be delayed again. Is it perhaps counterintuitive, at least, to set these very ambitious targets if they are like, more likely than not to be delayed again? Uh, I don't know if that is the case, but they've been delayed so many times so far, I'd be surprised if they weren't. So it's a really good question. I mean, what what's interesting is we are only at the very beginning stages of this whole process. Even the legislation isn't in Parliament yet. There's another consultation to go through. Legislation needs to be placed down. And then we get to 2023. So you've got the indeed 18 months mechanics of can you even get this infrastructure up there but then you've got another two-year hard stop for 99% of providers what's actually quite interesting is sorry 99% of pensions that is only actually completing the first wave to hit the 99% and that's where the devil's in the detail there are 32,000 providers I think but you only really need to hit the master trust the FCA regulated and the large occupational schemes to get there but I think really what the going back to Leslie's point on how much pressure there is on administrators, I think that the focus shouldn't be let's get absolutely everything in place immediately by 2025. I think it should be let's just even make sure we can find the pensions by 2025. And I almost said the value part trying to, as Leslie, I think you mentioned even earlier, there are so many different ways that you can even value pension schemes if you're looking at a DB or a DC. Let's just focus on finding them first. Because for the people that, say, can't remember the pensions that they had many, many years ago or moved addresses, I mean, administrators and trustees listening will know the issues with data, people divorcing, changing names, moving house. And I recently moved house and I am updating my pension providers about it. But I think I'm in the small minority because I actually work in the pensions industry. <laughs> but, so I think it's just trying to locate them all first. And let's hit that by 2025 for the top first wave. 
then let's focus on the value. And then people perhaps will be less disengaged by a time frame slipping if you've at least achieved one of those things. Uh, I agree with you. Focus on find my pension first. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose something is better than nothing, isn't it? And um, Leslie, if I can come to you finally on this topic, we, we hear a lot, of course, about the pension dashboard um, and the, the government led program uh, to achieve this. But from what I recall, the legislation around dashboards didn't rule out, for instance, the development of private dashboards alongside, um, which we haven't, I don't think, covered anywhere near as much. I don't suppose that, that you've been sort of you know, covering that yourselves or, or paying attention to whether any private providers are sort of pushing ahead with this, or maybe that there are some lessons to be learned from the private sector by the public sector. Well, I think if we go back a few years, because this has been around for a few years now, there certainly were more private sector providers who were looking at putting their own dashboards in place. But I think it became apparent, particularly when seeing what consumers thought, that if the dashboards were underpinned by government in some way, that people would have more confidence in A, the security of their information on that dashboard, and B, the accuracy. How they concluded that, I am not sure. But I think there is, as you say, nothing in the legislation that precludes private sector dashboards. But I think everybody is feeling that actually if the plumbing can be done effectively, then a one-stop shop for the consumer would be preferable rather than them having to go around and find their pension in different places. And I just think that's because as human beings, we're inherently lazy and we love to just have a simple solution for something. I wholeheartedly endorse that message. Um, right, we'll move on to the final topic then of the podcast, which is uh, cor uh, corporate activity and TPR's warning to trustees to be vigilant of it. And for some reason, when I, I heard that, that TPR made this warning again, be vigilant for corporate activity, I, I had in mind, it was a weird lucid dream, someone from Dalriada perched on the edge of a skyscraper like Batman, watching for a sneaky businessman to emerge and carry out some backroom deal in a seedy Gotham bar. But I don't think that's quite what they had in mind. Um, it has nonetheless urged vigilance as we emerge to the post-pandemic landscape. Weakening covenants are a fear. Businesses might look to move quickly to carry out restructuring work and other activities they deem necessary to their profitability or even their survival. Um, and Fran, I'll come to you first on this one, if, if you don't mind. We've not, I don't think, seen the mass round of insolvencies yet, have we? Or at least as far as, as, far as I've seen sort of widespread desperation moves by businesses. But um, is TPL covering its bases here with this uh, advice or is it, doing it because it expects more of this kind of activity in the near future? I think that there's two parts to this. There's that this is the, the, the recent funding statement is kind of more of the same. We have been hearing be vigilant, monitor your sponsor covenant, share information, have agreements around information sharing <clears throat> and have open channels of communication so you know what's going on. This is not new. What is new is COVID and the challenges which have happened. And you're exactly right then. There hasn't been a great deal of sponsor insolvency. It is starting the, the new um, Insolvency Act that was put in by the government last year. A number of businesses are starting to restructure under that. In fact, one of my clients is doing that at the moment. But what I think we will see is in about six months or over the coming months, as the COVID easements or the COVID provisions provided by the government wind down, 
that will cause some challenges. Whether it's widespread insolvency is a different question, but it will cause challenges. And I think particularly HMRC is going to be quite a key factor in all of this because there's all of these tax deferrals which have taken place. HMRC is actually one of the biggest instigators of insolvencies. So it's going to really depend on how aggressive HMRC does decide to be to trigger any of these insolvencies and how quickly it's going to expect tax deferrals to be paid back in, in practice. So I think there's a number of different things that we, we could see. But it's not only really the distressed side of things that I think TPR is telling us to be vigilant about. It's the corporate activity. And over the past of time that I've spent being a covenant advisor, this is the most corporate activity I've seen in, in my career. And that does tend to happen when you come out of a recession or a sort of a economic downturn. And I think we will only keep seeing more of it. Sure. Leslie, do you want to, to come in here? Trustees, obviously, they have a, a duty to, to ensure pension schemes are treated fairly don't they, with respect to other creditors and lenders, whether it's in an insolvency proceeding or, or in a corporate restructure or anything of this kind. Um, how much power do they really have to do this? Uh, are they at risk of being overwhelmed, perhaps, if there is this huge uptick in the amount of activity? Uh, are trustees on, you know, prepared to deal with it? I'd, I'd like to think they are, because as Franz rightly pointed out, you know, corporate activity happens all the time before COVID took place. Um, and I would expect them to have thought about scenario planning and have actually worked with their covenant advisors and been monitoring what's been happening over the last year and 18 months. So there, there will undoubtedly be challenges. Um, one of the challenges is sometimes employers are really late engaging with their trustees when it comes to any negotiations around what the impact of the corporate activity may be on the pension scheme. And then I've experienced myself this attempt sometimes to actually steamroller trustee boards into a particular course of action or accepting a particular proposal that's put on the table. So I think it's really important for trustee boards to have worked closely with their advisors, maybe to have created a special um, you know, committee that will be nimble and quick to deal with any employer proposals. And also, I think it's very important to have the right advisors I think it's easy to assume that the advisors that perhaps you work with on a regular basis will be the right advisors to deal with corporate activity or every type of corporate activity. That's not necessarily the case. And I've definitely found in my own personal experience that you do need to have specific advisors with different skill sets to come in and deal with some of the proposals that might be on the table. Um, in these types of situations, special situations in particular. And finally, finally, on, on this subject, if, if I may, with a slightly different uh, perspective, um, LCP was, was one of the first to warn, I think it might be back in January, of the, the possible implications of the pensions regulators' new powers on corporate activity. Obviously, there's still a lot of clarification needed there. They haven't fully come in yet. But um, 
the regulators attempted to clarify its position a couple of times on this already. Did you foresee this uh, having changed? Is, is LCB's initial warning updated in light of the regulator's guidance, or, or do you still think that there is a chance that it might hamper restructuring activity? I, I think that there's been some clarifications, very, some quite clear clarifications around uh, TPSA. That these are not intended to uh, put off business as usual corporate activity. And I think what's important, and certainly what we are advising now uh, our, our sponsor clients is engage exactly as Leslie said engage early so that you can understand the impact on the pension scheme so the corporate activity is not uh, dissuaged or is, is not put in, put in sort of not made difficult because I think by having that discussion over stakeholder fairness explaining these sorts of issues having the pension scheme at the forefront of your mind when you are thinking about doing some pretty business as usual pieces of activity which could be captured as long as you're documenting that that process uh, I think we are now of the view that as long as those conversations are happening um, it sh shouldn't be too challenging it shouldn't be too challenging but it's all about getting the right advice exactly as Leslie, Leslie said so get your advisors to give you the right advice Fingers crossed for that then. That brings us nicely to the um, the close of this part of the programme. I think we have a couple of pensions angles, always a pensions angles for you today, though. Um, so, Leslie, do you want to begin us with yours and then we'll come to Franz at the end? Well, it, it's quite a nice uh, lead on from what we've just been talking about in terms of corporate activity, because uh, people who uh, know me and have done for a number of years will know that uh, I spent uh, a few years at EMI and Thorne when we were the subject of uh, hostile takeovers at the time, uh, private equity on the left hand, private equity on the right hand. And um, we had to get in a, a number of different people to help us out, including on one of my schemes, um, uh, an independent trustee who was appointed by the regulator. And many of our listeners will know Chris Martin. But of course, at the time I was working for EMI and so a letter came into the post room addressed to Chris Martin and someone in our post room had written on it, pensions, not cold play. <laughs> Vital clarification. I'm sure he gets that mistake quite often. Um, <laughs> excellent. And uh, Fran, I think you had a, always a pensions angle as well for us. So I think mine's uh, thinking a little bit about distress sponsors, but actually taking a really positive approach on what I think the summer might look like. I mean, it's a really exciting month this month, uh, the Euro 2021 that starts in a in a few days. And it's also Pride Month. And I think that hopefully the national mood, particularly if we don't hear some bad news on, on Monday about uh, the world opening up again to us, I think the national mood is going to cause people to go out and spend, go be out in the streets, be out in the bars, perhaps go shopping. And I think that could be a really good lifeline for those distress sponsors that we have uh, really seen face some quite substantial challenges over the past 15 months. So my uh, takeaway is good national mood and hopefully we'll see an uptick in the fortunes of some of our more challenged DB sponsors. Fingers crossed for that as well, definitely. I think I did ask a couple of episodes ago whether reopening the pub should lead to updated mortality assumptions, but... um. <laughs> hopefully not um we'll see what happens with that one but uh no that's that's great thank you uh then very much for joining us thank you to fran uh, and to leslie that does bring us to the end of the program we'll be back in two weeks time and we hope to see you then hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.